Welcome to The Canopy, a podcast on the environmental humanities and all of its branches. This pod is brought to you by the Penn Program in Environmental Humanities, coming to you from the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, a city where bad things happen. I'm Bethany Wigan, and I'm the program's faculty director. I'm Angela Ferranda. I'm Mia DeFonso. Together, we're the program's coordinators and the Canopy's managing editors. Now it's time to get climbing. This episode of The Canopy features two conversations on two distinct topics. The first, with Dr. Dan Grimley, head of division for the humanities at Oxford University, continues our series of conversations about environmental justice between students at the Penn Program in Environmental Humanities and partners in the International Doctoral Cluster for Environmental Humanities at Oxford, the University of Toronto, and Penn. In this segment, you'll hear Sylvie Josel ask Dan about how environmental justice can be actualized on landscapes overseen, for example, by white supremacist Cecil Rhodes. Dan discusses the urgent need for research partnerships across the global North and South and the role that the humanities have to play even in, or maybe especially in, solutions-based environmental research. The second segment features our very own Rahul Mukherjee, who talks about his book, Radiant Infrastructures, Media, Environment, and Culture, that's now out with Duke University Press. In conversation with PPEH program coordinator Angela Ferranda, Rahul also considers how cultures of uncertainty permeate contemporary discussions of environmental and public health, percolating through topics as diverse as 5G technology and COVID vaccines. So thanks for listening and feel free to get in touch. We're on social media and you can always drop us a line at director at pphlab.org. Hello and welcome. My name is Sylvie Josel and I'm a graduate student at the University of Pennsylvania in the Master of Environmental Studies program. Last month, I had the great pleasure of sitting down with Dr. Dan Grimley of the University of Oxford to discuss issues of environmental justice. Dr. Grimley is the head of the Humanities Division at the University and is also a distinguished professor of music whose work focuses on the ways the landscape and environment can affect one's response to music and sound. Oxford, an institution with deep colonial legacies, presents a particularly interesting landscape for considering and addressing the burgeoning environmental justice movement. Dr. Grimley, thank you for taking the time to speak with me, and I'm wondering if and how you see environmental justice being pursued at Oxford. Yes, that's a really great question. So I see it really informing a lot of work in in Oxford in a variety of different ways. I think one is through the work that takes place in social sciences and in our life sciences divisions, which are concerned with questions of biodiversity, the Climate Change Institute, solutions-based approaches to thinking through Anthropocene notions of environments and of being in place. And I think invariably those questions are always um, shaded by other related issues of of migration, of human settlement, of political instability, of the legacies of colonialism, of class. 
And, and so I think that uh, environmental justice, even where it's not being foregrounded, is actually present in a lot of the activity that happens uh, across the university. And how do you see the humanities department connecting with issues of the environment and justice? And then for us in the humanities, why should we be concerned with this? Well, because if we, if we don't, then I think we won't have a world in which to do the humanities, quite frankly. And I think that the humanities above all has to be concerned with humanity. And I think the core principles of what it means to be human. And I think what the humanities does is it's offered a variety of different perspectives on some of those questions. Most importantly, I would suggest through looking at the long histories of slow violence that pertain to the kinds of conditions under which questions of environmental justice are often framed. So that might include, for instance, looking at European colonial presence in the global south, looking at records of of human intervention and climate change, for instance, in the eastern Mediterranean, and also thinking through responsibilities and ethics in social cultural contexts around solution-based approaches and asking why they haven't worked. It does seem like over and over again we see efforts falling short of achieving this widespread and lasting justice because of the immense complexities of these issues. And to address them in an authentic and all-encompassing manner requires a very broad and multifaceted understanding of, of why these inequalities have persisted for so long. So I think in, in terms of, of what we bring to, to the field, I think it's, it's precisely that concern with the long durée, with seeing problems across a much broader chronological span and recognising that these, these issues haven't arisen overnight, that there is a very long-standing complex reason why many uh, of these challenges remain. And I think it's also in acknowledging that solutions-based approaches need that social, cultural, historical framing if they're to be effective. I think also often we see very sophisticated hard-tech solutions to things like water supply not actually solve the problems they were designed to address because of the lack of a cultural trend. And that's, I think, where humanities, alongside social sciences, can be, can be, can be really vital. And I think there are job parties institutions to recognise and acknowledge and talk about that interconnectedness and that complexity. And of course, part of the, the challenge around environmental justice is that it isn't a, a single issue problem. The University of Oxford, like many significant Western institutions, has received extensive funding over the course of its history from powerful white men who made their fortunes through the exploitation of people of color. Despite protests and public calls for removal, such men remain prominent on Oxford's campus, living on as buildings eponyms and as statues like that of mining mogul, white supremacist and colonizer Cecil Rhodes. As someone who focuses on the impact and influence of the environment on one's interpretation, Dr. Grimley, I'm wondering if you feel that environmental justice can ever be actualized in a landscape overseen by a statue of Cecil Rhodes and the memories of men like him. Well, I think, yes, it can. But I think more importantly, yes, it has to. For what it's worth, I had felt that the statue probably should have been taken down four years ago. It's really important that we don't allow the statue to get in the way of the urgency of the environmental justice questions that we do need to to address. I think the question is more, what can 
institutions such as Oxford University do in order to pursue research that can address the challenges that environmental justice poses as effectively and as swiftly and as transparently and as fairly and as equitably as possible. And I think it needs to do that in a number of ways. I think one is by working with partners throughout the world, especially in the global south, in ways that enables them to address those challenges and build greater resilience and robustness in those institutions so that we're empowering those people who are most affected by these issues. And I think another way of thinking about this is not to assume that environmental justice is only about race. I think it's also about class. And I think class and other kinds of social hierarchies are no less ingrained in Oxford's social and historical fabric. And we also need to attend to those other kinds of environmental injustice that maybe aren't as prominent in the headlines at the moment as the debates around around roads. And we have an equally important legacy to address in those areas. So I think it's actually a very complex question, but I don't think it's one that we should allow the statute simply to get in the way of. We, we have to address these questions, and we need to continue to play a part in seeking to address those, those long historical legacies in all sorts of areas. Absolutely. Beyond these historical influences, are there barriers that you've come across in trying to promote environmental justice on campus? I think there's always a, a disparity between what you want to achieve and what you actually can achieve in the short term. You know, I think everyone feels that they could do more and are unable to. And I think also historical legacies can inadvertently create difficulties in terms of building partnerships with external colleagues who might want to reach out to. You know, I think that the perception of Oxford as, as white elitist privilege means that people often choose not to work with us or, or feel threatened by the idea of working with us. And I think we have to do more to overcome those perceptions of, of who we are, what we represent and what we do. So how do you work to overcome those perceptions? Well, I think I think it's just investing in that bilateral relationship and in the personal connection and also going into relationships without the expectation of profiting from it as an institution. You know, that's not what it's about, really. That's not what we do, and that's not what research is for. So I think it's ensuring that those partnerships are genuinely bilateral. Well, thank you, Dr. Grimley. I think those were some wonderful insights, and it's incredibly encouraging that an institution like Oxford is looking to seriously contribute to the environmental justice movement which is certainly not a simple task, but a crucial one. Before we go, just a final question. As a professional, a researcher, a writer, a lover of the arts, do you find yourself or your work influenced by issues of environmental justice or perhaps by artists who address them? You know, someone I've been thinking about a lot recently is a Danish Greenlandic artist, Pia Harker, whose work was very influenced by the issues of being mixed race in a colonial country and working in a colonised country that is experiencing some of the most direct impacts of, of climate change and thinking through her approach to, to environmental justice. Pia Arca was an artist whose work favours the themes of memory, identity and the shadows of historical violence. Arca, half Danish and half Greenlandic, half coloniser and half colonised, once wrote, I make the history of colonialism part of my history in the only way I know namely by taking it personally. 
Her work is at the same time both haunting and lovely, and almost invokes humor, despite the painful history that it addresses. And what I really admired about her work was its creativity, its originality, and its playfulness. And I think its playfulness is is what's most transformative about it. And I've been thinking a lot about her work in in the past couple of years. Thinking about goodness me, what what a remarkable and how that gives us a completely different perspective on many of these questions of environmental justice. And I think that's something that's rather unique to the arts and to the humanities. This opportunity to address extremely weighty topics in a way that's personal or maybe unconventional, which I think allows for the exploration of a topic like environmental justice through inventiveness or beauty, even, which makes these topics more approachable, you know, and easier to contemplate and discuss and consider. And I think that really adds something unique as as we work to build forwards, especially when considering these topics in an academic setting. Well, again, thank you so much for speaking with me today, Dr. Grimley. I very much appreciate your time. And thank you to everybody listening for tuning in. I'm PPEH Program Coordinator Angela Ferranda. And in this segment of The Canopy, I sit down with our colleague at Penn, Rahul Mukherjee. Rahul is one of our affiliated faculty members and teaches courses in English and Cinema and Media Studies. He is the author of Radiant Infrastructures, Media, Environment, and Cultures of Uncertainty, published by Duke University Press. Rahul, can you define what Radiant Infrastructures are for those who have never heard the term before? For many people and for many countries, infrastructures are, you know, painted to be these kinds of glistening objects of development. So they always have this shine that will bring development, whether it's roads, railways. And in my case, there were nuclear reactors and cell towers. And what I was trying to argue in the book was that I'm using radiant infrastructures more specifically for nuclear reactors and cell towers, not only because they have these kind of glistening symbolic aspects of, you know, the shine of development with them, but because they also are emitters of radiation. Now they emit very different kinds of radiation. Nuclear reactors emit ionizing radiation vis-a-vis cell, cell towers, which emit non-ionizing uh, radiation in the more sort of radio frequency band. So they're very different kinds of radiations. Because I wanted to argue in my book uh, and discuss these two infrastructures that I use that term. So both the, the radiance or the glow of development attached with them as these infrastructures, which are going to herald a country into development, uh, and at the same time, actually radiation emitting devices. What inspired you to decide to study India's radiant infrastructure and media? Partly, it was about the contingency of that moment when I was there doing field work that people were talking about this, say, in 2011. Uh, you know, Fukushima had happened and there was a sort of worldwide protest against um, particular sightings of nuclear reactors and in India also in the southern state of Tamil Nadu in this place called Kudankulam. They were opposing the sighting of nuclear reactors. At the same time, in the cities in India, there was this opposition against kind of a rampant construction of or, or setting up of cell towers and rooftops. And there were a whole bunch of civilian population in these cities who were kind of scared about what are these signals? Are they really harmful? Though there's been a lot of uncertainty about it. So the radiations from both uh, nuclear reactors and cell towers were causing a bit of an anxiety for, or quite some anxiety for people who lived close to them. So people would go 
to their balconies or veranda for their morning cup of tea and to read the newspaper. And they would see just facing them the cell towers on the opposite apartment rooftop. And they would be kind of worried. So, so that's where I thought I'll write about radiant infrastructures and media. You know, the thing is that um, India has a very dynamic media per se, but often people say that, um, and quite rightly so, that there is not enough environmental coverage and, and that's correct too. But I also realized that one has to sort of construe of media quite broadly and that there were, of course, these talk shows and lifestyle shows, which were dedicated to many other things and not environmental issues, but in one episode or in some other episode, and they had lots of episodes, but maybe one of their episodes was related to discussing the cell tower issue. And it was important to sort of connect some of these episodes across different shows together, documentary films, uh, which have a very different way of being distributed in India particularly anti-nuke documentary films, were also a kind of environmental films. And so it was important to sort of connect these dots across different media. The anti-nuke documentary films were made much in solidarity with people's movements where questions of environmental justice and social justice are, are closely connected. And that has a very different ethos than, say, or mainstream uh, TV shows. But at the same time, I tried to sort of think of this as more of a media system and as much as there were differences, there were also connections across different medias. What does the concept of a culture of uncertainty mean? And how does it manifest in India, particularly with radiant infrastructures? Yeah, so that's an important concept, I think, for the book I was writing. And one one of the ways to think about it is, is of course, that uncertainty is, is different from risk in the sense that risk is considered to be much more about quant- quantitatively assessing the dangers of a particular environmental issue or a particular oil leakage or, or an infrastructural emission, so on and so forth. Um, but uncertainty suggests that there is, so there is more room for play there. It's not always determined quantitatively vis-a-vis risk, which is quantitatively determined. So Uncertainty is where people really don't know, even scientists, uh, there is no consensus. Uh, Some scientists think that electromagnetic emissions from cell towers are harmful. Others think that that's not the case at all. Cell tower signals are totally fine. So amidst this kind of uncertainty, which is also there's a scientific uncertainty, how does social and cultural uncertainty play out? And that was something that I was very interested, both how people in their everyday lives were coping with that uncertainty. So there was this case of a, of a person living in Jaipur where several of his family members had been affected by cancer. And he thought that the reason for that is a cell tower close to the house. And he couldn't get them evicted, but he got a promise from the telecom officials that the tower was going to be evicted, uh, that the tower was not going to be evicted, but that they would reduce the signal levels. But he never kind of could believe them because you know he was still very traumatized. Um, so he would check with the radiation detectors he had where the signal levels were low. But he could not even trust radiation detectors, even though they were showing signal levels to be low. He finally believed that the officials had indeed put down the levels uh, when peacocks returned to his garden after five years or so. Uh, so he believed more in the peacock's perception. People might call it, you know, kind of a misinformation campaign or that he was superstitious about peacocks. So on and so forth. I mean, he never ran a campaign, so it was not misinformation per se, but people could say that this was superstition. But I thought about this also, that this could be all that, but it could also be, you know, more everyday ways of coping for a person who has gone through quite a lot 
and even finds the that the scientific studies are not conclusive so so how does one go about one's life so yeah so those are some of the cases of thinking about cultures of uncertainty related to radiant infrastructures this is so interesting and timely for a lot of reasons as covid vaccines rolled out one conspiracy theory widely disproven falsely believed that the covid-19 vaccines contain microchips that the government or global elites like Bill Gates would use to track citizens. I'm wondering what you think in light of the past year that we've gone through and particularly the misinformation or information about 5G and the vaccine for COVID-19 and the spread of that type of information. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the connection between 5G and the vaccines seemed quite strange so we are living in these times where some of these sort of theories gain ground and and sort of spread through the media so the media also has a role uh to play and of course cultures of uncertainty you know it's it's we've been talking quite a lot about uncertainty amidst the covid crisis and um of course some of the cultures of uncertainties could lead to a lot of problematic misinformation campaigns but put another way it also helps us understand how people are sort of coping with the uncertainty so at the level of more everyday forms of how people are you know even as the the respiratory aspect is is more central to uh the spread of the of the virus and hence masks but others have often also mentioned perhaps touching and hence this whole imperative that people have perceived to to clean uh, to be you know uni- using sanitizers how much of it is useful to clean the produce before it's uh, taken to one's fridge from the store uh, so I, I can see in those sort of more everyday ways of coping again, and you know, and how much sanitization is required, how much of, how many times do you have to use the sanitizer once you touch, say, uh, a button in the elevator. I think those are you can see some of the ways in which, again, uh, even though the, my book was much more about radiant infrastructures, that you see that it's uh, that with COVID also one can see some of these cases where cultures of uncertainty operate and in, in how people in their more sort of everyday ways are coping. In a way, I'm still hopeful that um, as I'm thinking of, of writing something around the COVID-19 crisis, that cultures of uncertainty might be a, a useful conceptual lens. Thanks, Rahul, for being with us on The Canopy to talk about your book and about how the concept of cultures of uncertainty permeates contemporary conversations of environmental and public health. This has been very helpful. Thank you for listening to The Canopy. For more, please visit the Penn Program in Environmental Humanities at our website, ppehlab.org. You can find more episodes there or wherever you find your podcasts. Subscribe and share and be in touch on social media. Until next time.